0: This week's TribCast will talk about Wendy Davis' entrance into a central Texas congressional race, the state's alternatives to abortion program, what the Texas coast can learn from the Dutch on storm surge, and how the legalization of hemp is confusing pot prosecutions. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors, Zach Theaters and Tough as Nails, Funny as Hell. The incomparable Ann Richards is brought to life by Libby Villari, star of Friday Night Lights and Boyhood, July 31st through September 8th. For tickets and more information, visit ZachTheater.org. And the Texas State Technical College, The Solution to the Skills Gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu. Do I have to
1: talk a a long time.
0: Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, July 24th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello. Hello. Uh, Environment reporter and associate editor Kia Collier. Hi. Hi, Kia. And healthcare reporter and associate editor Edgar Walters. Hey there. All-star lineup this week. We're also going to be calling in our DC Bureau Chief Abby Livingston from Washington in just a few minutes here. Um, As always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag TribCast. Edgar, let's start with you uh, and some really fascinating reporting from you this week on the state's Alternatives to Abortion Program, which pays private counselors to discourage women from terminating their pregnancies. So in the last legislative session, first tell us about like what lawmakers did for this program in the budget.
1: Um, they did a lot for the program. Specifically, they doubled its funding. Um, they basically said, uh, they increased its base funding to $60 million over the next two years, which is a lot. And then they also did something that they have done in previous budget cycles, which is said, um, if HHSC can identify a need for the program to grow even more, they gave them another $20 million to do that. So if you're a anti-abortion counselor, um, it's a good session if you want to make a buck. Mm
0: -hmm. And so... Uh, Now, post-session, even though we we know we have this growth in the budget of the program, uh, 80 Republican lawmakers have taken a really unusual step. And what is that step?
1: Um, They wrote to the Health and Human Services Commission, which is in charge of um, awarding contracts for private services. And they basically said, HHSC, listen, we know that normally you field competitive bids for contract, you know, like... Um, say you're building a house and you, you know, are going to have some tile floors installed, you might, you know, call three or four different people and see who offers the best price, right? Um, But what these lawmakers told HHSC to do is don't do that, just continue going with the current provider, this group called the Texas Pregnancy Care Network. Um, And yeah, these 80 Republicans said, we think they're doing such a good job, no need for a competitive bid, let's just give them the extra money.
0: So that is, a, is quite unusual. I mean, it would be a departure from the agency process. I, it feels like maybe that's a process that would be outlined like in state law or state policy. I mean, aren't RFPs, aren't getting multiple bids for something like basically standard practice?
1: Yeah, it's standard practice. Um, you don't have to do it in every case. But what's interesting here is that the Health and Human Services Commission is always getting beat up in the state legislature mm-hmm. for its contract, contracting processes. Um you know, <laughs> just a couple of years ago, um, the former health commissioner Kyle Janik, was basically forced to resign um, over this no-bid contract that had mm-hmm. been awarded under his tenure to a software company. Uh, pretty recently, Abbott like um, wrote this really scathing letter to the uh, previous health commissioner over um, how the agency was awarding contracts. And among these eighty Republican lawmakers, you have some. You have people like State Senator Jane Nelson and and others who are sort of champions of contracting reform saying, actually, in this case, um, if you have to field a bunch of bids, it's too much red tape, and we think you should just give it to the provider who's already, you know, got the contract currently. So
0: like, what's happening behind the scenes here? I mean, there are a couple of, you know, my brain always like goes to the worst possible place. So to get 80 lawmakers to sign on, Does that mean that this particular contractor is like going to the lawmakers and saying, I really don't want to be part of a bidding process. Just, you know, please, will you all help us? Does it mean that there are no other good providers or any providers out there that can fill this, you know, void?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So. Uh, the, the provider, the Texas Pregnancy Care Network, their executive director told me they did not ask lawmakers to send this letter. Um, How is that even possible? But they do have some... He, he basically said in previous iterations when we've had to bid for the contract, there's so much red tape, this agency is so big, they're so annoying to work with, that it.
0: HHSC is so annoying to work with.
1: Well, he didn't say <laughs> those were your that words exactly, but. But <laughs> paraphrase. Yeah. paraphrase
0: has nothing to do with his personal relationship with the agency. <laughs> right.
1: Um, that, you know, it cost them a bunch of money, there were delays, and it was a problem. And lawmakers sort of echoed those exact same concerns in their letter. Um, the other thing, though, is that this is a program that is. In Texas, I mean, it's it's not a new program. It's existed since 2006, but there's not a lot of like precedent for this. This is not women's health care in the traditional sense. There is not, say, a Medicaid billing code for... Um, Counseling I, you out of an abortion. I talked to a woman out of having an abortion, right. and that service costs you know like $100 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, there is not a lot of competition, and I think it is kind of... Obviously state lawmakers have have established this as a priority they've grown the funding so fast um, and I think some entrepreneurial anti-abortion folks are realizing that this actually could be a business model
0: mm-hmm. interesting
2: how do people get referred to the Texas pregnancy network is that what, like how does say someone comes in wanting or seeking an abortion or they're pregnant and like how does one get
0: to them. Right, because it's not like you show up at Planned Parenthood t- asking for an abortion and they say, hey, wait, why don't you yeah. go talk to the right. crisis pregnancy people? Or the yeah. they,
1: they spend a fair amount of money on advertising. You may see these billboards around that say, like, okay. pregnant, mm-hmm. need help. Need help, call, yeah. Call, and then there's a helpline. And that helpline that you're calling is probably um, the Texas Pregnancy Care Network or the Human Coalition. And then they'll say, hey, where do you live? Um, well, there's a clinic just down the street. We'll send you to them.
3: And the network is a bunch of subcontractors, Right.
1: Yeah, so they, have. they do
3: their own outreach, probably. Right. So, is there
0: any version? Is there any competitor to the network that's out there? You know, or is there anybody calling us saying this is so unfair that they are pushing for this?
1: So, AT2C did not post these contracts online, um, so I don't necessarily know the entire scope of the universe of this. But my impression from my reporting is that there are two contractors in the program, and the Texas Pregnancy Care Network is by is far and away the largest. Mm-hmm. Um, series of, of providers, but there's this new group um, that's come on board in recent years, the Human Coalition, um, which I think has a smaller market share. Um, but yes, a rapidly growing program. We may expect to see if HHSC does ultimately put this up for a competitive bidding process, there could very, it would be easy for me to fathom that there would be a lot of other you know interested parties.
2: And has, how, oh, oh, go ahead, Julie. I was going to say, has HHSC or anything, like, has there been any response, or was this just like this happened and there's been no answer yet? Right. How likely is it to actually yeah. happen?
1: Well, um, I, you know, I didn't hear from HHSC about what exactly their plan is, but um, when this lawmaker letter came to light, there was um, a, sort of a letter filed in opposition from. State Representatives Sarah Davis and Donna Howard, one Republican, one Democrat, um, both involved in budget writing at the state legislature and both very with a sort of key focus on health and human services programs and they told AT to see the exact opposite. They said, despite any pressure you may have gotten, like you absolutely must put this up for a bid. state law says you should do that. your own policy says you should do that. So I think it's still an open question
0: uh, the governor has not did not sign this letter right.
1: His not name is not on it, right? it.
0: I mean, I wonder if this is, a, and this is a relatively new commissioner at the top of this agency, correct? Like, I guess I wonder how much of a test this is for her.
1: Yeah, I I, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how it plays out.
0: One more last question on this uh, before we go to Abby in Washington, but what do we know about how many women are served by this program? Like, does the state collect any data on on this? Like it does, I mean, there's so much data around, you know, reproductive care and abortion services in Texas. Is
1: there similar for this? Um, the data is way less extensive for the Alternatives to Abortion program than any like traditional women's health program. Um, for the first time, this legislative session, lawmakers did include some language in the budget telling the agency that they have to collect a little bit more data. Basically, what we have right now is a total number of services provided and a number for the total number of um, clients served. But we don't know who those clients are and what specifically those services are. Whereas you look at a women's health program or whatever, they have to tell you exactly the number of IUDs or other sort of long acting uh, contraceptives that were were used. The the, the level of reporting is not the same, um, but the hope is after this session that uh, there will be a little bit more data coming to light about what the Alternatives to Abortion Program is actually providing.
0: Thank you, Edgar. Uh, well, since we're on the topic of abortion, uh, let's call in Abby to talk about the woman who really made her name in Texas filibustering anti-abortion legislation. That's former state senator and former gubernatorial candidate Wendy Davis. Abby, tell us about the race she's running in now. Well,
4: it is going to be probably the most interesting congressional basis taxes next cycle or next year. Uh, so she's originally from Fort Worth, as I'm assuming most listeners know, but she relocated to Austin a few years ago and she is running in a district that takes in parts of south austin goes west into the hill country to fredericksburg Kerrville, and then it goes south on the west side of interstate 35 into the northern parts of uh, san antonio into alamo heights and so it's a, a very interestingly drawn district and <laughs> so she is uh and a lot of times when politicians move to new districts there's this whole question of like do they have to introduce themselves and I think most people probably already know who she is. This is a competitive seat. What she does to make it easier or more difficult for Democrats is sort of the open question. And she's running against a very conservative incumbent named Chip Roy.
0: So, uh, Abby, tell me a little bit about her rollout. There was a you know very well produced video, you know, featuring her, uh, her dad. I mean, what how what was her initial day like?
4: So the video came out early Monday morning, and I haven't confirmed. Uh, exactly who did it, But my sense is it's one of the best ad makers in democratic politics. And so this is something being taken very seriously, and the quality was very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she rolled it out. Um she did a couple of interviews. Uh, I think she did MSNBC Monday night. She talked to me a little bit. And her campaign came out about a day later and said that she raised about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is a pretty good sum. For a challenger uh, candidate, now you got to remember, Chip Roy's been basically running for re since the beginning of this year, and he has about six hundred thousand dollars in cash on hand.
0: So, what are her chances in this district, and and what are her chances as compares to sort of the name he's made for himself in Congress? Has he made her chances better or worse in this district?
4: He is going to have, most likely, very strong backing from a group called the Club for Growth, which does a great deal of spending to support their endorsed candidates. But he is also, I would argue, this is probably a central right district. I think the the handicappers who say it's lean Republican, maybe likely Republican, have it right. Um, But he may be a little too conservative for the district, and she may be a little too liberal. And so you've got this matchup of pretty polarizing Candidates and it's it's kind of an open question of how this goes down. I think most people right now assume Chip Roy has the upper hand, but boy, we've seen some strange things in the last five years, mm-hmm. and so I, I I just count myself as agnostic.
0: So Davis's announcement uh, seemed to sort of upstage another candidate on the same day who uh, entered the statewide race to defeat U.S. Senator John Cornyn. Uh, what's the story there with Royce West?
4: So he rolled out about two hours after she did. And so I, I did kind of wonder about that. And it may have just been, you know, guys not knowing what the uh, the right hand, not knowing what the left hand was doing. But Roy West has entered the phrase, a state senator from Dallas, and he's gotten a number of endorsements already lined up. Um, but this race is interesting because the top three candidates are uh, Senator West, former congressional candidate M.J. Hager, and Houston at-large city councilwoman Amanda Edwards. And so right now it's pretty it's pretty clear the National Democrats want M.J. Hager, but it could shape up to be a regional war where it's Dallas versus Houston. My phone blows up with Dallas people talking about Royce West's chances and his strengths, and then on the, another day it's the Houston people telling me how great Amanda Edwards is. So I think this is one of those times we have to remember just how big the state of Texas is and how disconnected these different regions are, and these candidates are going to have to introduce themselves to places outside of their uh, their their. Uh, home bases. You said
0: that it looked like Washington was sort of coalescing, you know, around MJ Hager. Did uh, Royce West get some signaling from D.C. that he should jump in the race?
4: I have not received any signals the way it is telegraphed reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is the way the Senate Democratic campaign arm historically works is they are emphatic on who they like. And they've been pretty out there with uh, M.J. Hager, um, and they're, they've been relatively silent on the others, which is a little bit better than other candidates have had in other states. Oftentimes, it can be kind of a brutal process where the National Democrats try to push them out of the race, and they've a little laissez-faire and just kind of letting it play out as it is. Mm-hmm.
0: There had been some suggestion that maybe Wendy Davis would run for that Senate seat, and instead she decided to run for the congressional seat. Um, you know, was was she getting signals she shouldn't run? What's, what's your thinking behind why Wendy Davis didn't jump in uh, to try to unseat John Cornyn? Uh,
4: I can't speak to if she got any signals not to run, but I do think during the process of her mulling this, it was pretty overt that M.J. Hager was the choice. Mm-hmm. And so... Her FEC report has had some uh, senators giving to her, um, but her, she raised a million dollars in her first quarter. Granted, she got in pretty late in the quarter, but that's not gangbusters for a Senate candidate. Um, and so I, I think the way it's been laid out to me by one consultant is, a national one who's not in Texas, is this thing is pretty quiet right now, and if it breaks for the Democrats, it's probably going to be a year from now once the presidential amps up. But I think most people right now think Senator Cornyn is going to be very formidable.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, just one last question coming in from social media from Donna. She wants to know if Royce West's run impacts his Senate seat in any way, his state Senate seat.
4: Um, most likely not. He's not up for re-election this cycle, I, I, so I think it's kind of a gimme run for him. Um, and I don't. I'm not going to claim to be a, an expert on state politics, but I sometimes know politics. Sometimes a candidate shoots a little higher and they come back a little weakened, and that can be a problem if they don't run a really good race when they're shooting for higher office. But I think right now there's no question. This is a gemmy. He can run for this. And if he doesn't win it, he can just keep running at the Senate seat in two years.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Abby, for joining us. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more Tribcast sponsors, the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, which is proud to support alumnus and Texas Tribune founder Evan Smith and his mission to promote civic engagement and public policy discourse through quality journalism. And the Episcopal Health Foundation. By providing millions of dollars in grants, working with congregations and community partners, and providing important research, see how the Episcopal Health Foundation is working to improve health, not just health care in Texas. More at episcopalhealth.org. All right, Jolie, let's jump to you. Uh, I want to talk about a giant stir the state's uh, legalization this last legislative session of hemp has created, in particular because it changed uh, or seemed to change the state's definition of marijuana. So first, just talk about what hemp is for the uninitiated. Sorry if I'm revealing too much. Um, And what happened with it in the last legislative session?
2: Yeah, so hemp is basically, it's a product of the cannabis plant as well. So it's both marijuana and hemp are part of our, the cannabis plant but hemp is more parts that aren't they don't have the element that gets you high so it's more used for like rope uh, clothing lotions and then the big one that has been most controversial over the last few years is the CBD oil um, generally less than point anyway so the definition now <laughs> I'll get into it. so that's what hemp is um, the definition of hemp is like the Parts of the cannabis plant that are that have less than 0.3 percent of THC, which is what gives you the high in marijuana. Um, so that did it the definition in the health and safety code with just like the drug code where marijuana is now parts of the can, like the cannabis plant that is more than 0.3. Mm.
0: So, if you have like point, if some a product that is point three percent of the marijuana plant, but it's not the hemp part; it's the marijuana plant. It's still considered not what, not a illegal drug.
2: Yeah. So it's it's kind of complicated how like because it's the t- same type of plant grown in different ways with different types of you know methods and everything like that. But it's just the type of chem like how concentrated this chemical compound is.
3: So
1: basically, cannabis is fine as long as it's not cannabis with THC in it. Yes. So...
3: Or below 0.3.
0: Or below 0.3. Or
2: 0.2% THC is also fine.
0: Right, and that's sort of the, the... of this, what Julie just said, because there's been a fallout for this with prosecutors who are charged with tackling marijuana cases, correct? I mean, talk about that.
2: Yeah. So there have been numerous district attorneys across the state who have, um, upon seeing this, like the definition of marijuana has changed in the statute, um, have said, we don't have a way to determine if something is... Marijuana now, or if it's hemp. So uh, some district attorneys have been dropping hundreds of misdemeanor cases and kind of putting the felony ones on the shelf and waiting to see what happens if there's going to be a way to test this. Which there is a plan in the works, um, but it would still be several months out. So Um, is it that they they can't test the concentration? What is it? So what happened previously? A a lot of prosecutors didn't test marijuana cases. A lot of these cases are tried on if they go to trial, which most of them obviously do not. um, They're put forward on like a law enforcement can say, I know with my law enforcement training based on like smell and like X amount of factors that that is marijuana. So they weren't taking it to the lab to begin with. Some of them were, but not all of them. Um, And so there wasn't like as much of a necessity in terms of like meth or cocaine. Like how can I tell that you know, that like, white that that powder is cocaine, right, yeah. it's a little bit easier, it was a little bit easier to identify, um, which I, th- you know, like you smell marijuana and like, you're like, yeah, that's someone smoking pot. <laughs> right? Like, Are um, the
3: cases they're dropping involving like edibles and things that it's harder to tell what it is? It's not like if you find a literal bag of pot, you kind of know what it is. There's right, still
2: but, that though. So like, no, they're saying like, you know, if you see a bag that's, you know, from, you know, looks like pot, how do you know those aren't like hemp? leaves Mm -hmm. yeah like anything like that so it's they're saying i mean it depends on the prosecutor right but there are a lot saying like we're just shelving all of this we're not prosecuting marijuana until we have a test and the way they tested it before was if they were going to test it they would send it to the lab and the lab some crime labs have told me they just tested for the presence of cannabinoids so they just like do a spot check it takes like a minute Something turns purple, then it has cannabinoids. But hemp, that's that's cannabis, right? So right. you were checking for the presence of cannabis, which could also be hemp.
0: Right. So basically what these prosecutors have argued in some cases is that the law sort of like de facto legalized small amounts of marijuana
2: because it was impossible to test to find out if it was hemp. Like inadvertently? I mean, yeah, there's an argument that this inadvertently decriminalized Marijuana, at least until there is a method in place right. to be able to <laughs> right. test it, which the state crime labs do not like the DPS crime labs and almost all the other publicly run crime labs don't have.
3: Wasn't it like an equipment issue though? Like they said, we don't have the equipment, but then later it, it was cost like, like
2: $500,000. Yeah, to, but
3: later they're like, we do have the equipment. I yes, was like well, about so that. it's
2: changed a lot, right? Like originally they were like, we need tests to be able to quantify how much THC is in each substance that we want to test. And they've talked to the DEA. They've gone back and forth. They have a plan now where they think they have equipment. It can still be qualitative, which is like they were checking to see if it had a certain substance. So they would check to see if it had THC, but it would still just be a yes, no. So like the cutoff they were thinking was 1% because that's what the DEA is looking at. So if it had 1% of THC or less, it would say it would still be a yes/no test. It wouldn't say this has 0.7% THC. It would just be above or below 1%. And they think they have the way to do that, but like with all the given, like the extra caseload that they would need,ed they are still saying like Crime Labs would still need more resources, more humans, and more equipment. But it would be significantly less expensive.
1: And if something has 1% THC in it, like that's not what, if if somebody's like smoking pot, like it doesn't just have 1% THC in it, right?
2: Like, I mean, you would hope not if you were the person <laughs> that would be smoking not, person bad bad that pot. The person who's buying that is like
1: probably the I same would, person who buys a bag of oregano this. from right. their next <laughs> door neighbor and thinks it's,
2: <laughs> You would, I mean, you would... Yeah, so that's what the argument is, right? Like the crime labs are moving forward. The Forensic Science Commission is looking at this solution and they're thinking like prosecutors aren't going to be upset that... You know, if it's 0.7% THC, I think they're going to, if it's under one, they're going to be okay to let it go. Right. What, um, what it's a different story when it comes to regulating the hemp production industry, but that's more on, like, the rules that set up with the ag department and all, like, that goes into a different bucket.
1: So, So you said in... Basically, in most marijuana cases, these things don't go to trial, right? There's usually some kind of. If it's a low level possession, it's they reach some kind of guilty plea or some kind of deal. Or in
2: a lot, of, like the big county, like Harris and Dallas, and stuff, like they have diversion programs already. So, like it's a site and release. You show, you go through this diversion. Like Harris County right. has like a four hour class, and it's dismissed.
1: But what the prosecutors are saying is that with this law change, they the state has sort of handed defense attorneys like a free kind of maneuver, like oh, right, so, what my client was smoking wasn't actually marijuana, it was just
0: hemp. Or they just have no... Right, they have no way to tell. Or they, you can't sell. So, yeah. Therefore, so they're, they can't prosecute.
2: Right, so they're saying, like, sure, you might be... able. Like, probable cause is even harder now because it's just because it smells like marijuana. Hemp and marijuana will smell the same because it's the same plant. But... Um, if it's like burnt marijuana, like you, there's still some things you could get at with probable cause, but then they get to the question of reasonable doubt. And that's where they're saying like, that's just really hard to... What reason
0: would you ever be smoking hemp if you... <laughs>
2: Apparently some people do. It's not generally a thing that people do. Apparently I've been told that some people do, like if, it's, if they're using like CBD oil or like gummies or something for like pain, because it's like a lot with inflammation, mm. somehow like smoking it has made it like it hits the pain, like it... Mm. Oops, numb the. I don't, these are all like anecdotes I've heard. Right. Well, I mean, one
0: part of this, I'm really interested. So the the governor's office and top state leaders were like, were very defensive about this. It seemed like the moment that prosecutors started saying this had made it harder for them. Right. I mean, how did they weigh in?
2: The governors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had been reaching out and I'm sure as many other reporters have, we're reaching out, trying to get some comment from, you know, state leadership, like what's going on here Are you, are what's, the next step or what's happening here. And basically a few weeks after this became like very big news, um, they came out with a letter saying this didn't, we did not decriminalize marijuana and there are plenty of ways to like continue prosecuting. Lab tests are going to get cheaper if, and you also don't need lab tests in every situation, which is something that like the El Paso district attorney has been one that's saying, um, we still have enough circumstantial evidence. There's been a lot of, debate over whether that's true but that
3: was really just what they said though was probable cause you solve probable cause that was their only yeah. kind of point right yeah
0: I mean one you know I I think one thing that's really interesting about this is you could look at this and say like that the people who wanted is it possible the people who wanted to legalize hemp like knew this would be an outcome <laughs> or like that the people pro decriminalization of marijuana more broadly were like oh yeah this is going to be an unintended intended
2: Consequence? Given the bill authors, I would think definitely not is something that they wanted. Or, But, um, I mean, th- this was something—I'm uh, <laughs> looking into this right now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> totally not
0: speculating. Well, anyway, I'm going to speculate. Yeah, right. I
3: mean, it was, like, in response to federal law, right? right. They were nice. just so saying, like, the- we're responding to
2: that, and so maybe they just, like— thought, oh, whatever, this is simple. Right, so this was definitely... in Last year, they passed the federal hemp law, or the federal farm bill, which legalized hemp in a similar way, and this is basically Texas trying to say, we want our own state regulations on that because the USDA was basically like, we will give you regulations or come up with your own. So this was that.
1: Was it possible that prosecutors were just saying, like, this takes a lot of time and effort, and we don't really want to prosecute these cases, and here's a convenient... You know, that is an to. argument
2: that uh, uh law ma- that has been made <laughs> yeah uh, whether i mean it, but the, the difference yeah. is like Yes, Harris County, Dallas County, things like Travis, like they have these programs where they've already been trying to move away from prosecuting pot. Um, but this isn't just like the big liberal counties that have been moving this. There's even like, even the more conservative district attorneys, if they're saying like, we're still going to continue to prosecute marijuana, a lot of them have said, but there might be a delay because we do have to have this testing now. So like there's still, it's not like, like you know, Waco. There's been a lot of places throughout the state that are more conservative,
0: Great. Thank you, Jolie. Uh, All right, Kia, you're the reporter of the Tribune who has most uh, closely covered the environmental impacts here of climate change, sea level rise, and you were one of the reporters most sort of deeply embedded for us in Houston during uh, Hurricane Harvey and after. Um, As a student of flooding, of storm surge, of all those things, you crossed the Atlantic Ocean this year on a research mission of sorts. Where did you go and what did you learn?
3: Uh, I went to the Netherlands and... This uh, is a total junket, by the
0: way. Um, great reporting that came out of
3: it. Well, thank you for letting me go. It was such a privilege. Um, uh, So the Dutch... um, which it's funny, our social media manager, Bobby, was like, I didn't realize people from the Netherlands were called the Dutch. And I kind of really didn't. It's hard. It's it's hard. (laughs) Yeah. And then Holland versus the Netherlands. Anyway, um, so the Dutch are very much related to a topic I've been reporting on for years now, uh, which is the effort to guard the Houston-Galveston region from hurricanes. Um, And a plan that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, in partnership with the Texas General Land Office, uh, is looking at is very much Dutch-inspired. So it's massive storm surge barrier gates, um, big sand dunes that are fortified or, like, you know, nourished, um, maintained. um, And uh, scientists here in Texas have been uh, preaching the Dutch gospel for years now. No one's died in a flood there in 66 years. Yeah,
0: you also said something like hardly any of the Dutch have even have flood insurance, even though a third of the Netherlands is below, actually below sea level. Just crazy.
3: Yeah, their you know philosophy is block storm surge right at the coast. Um, So they have these. I open the story with this scene of these massive sand dunes that are like six stories high. And then like the little boardwalk that would normally be right on the, on the water in the U.S. is like tucked behind these dunes. Behind the dunes, right. And there's this wedding party scrambling to the top of the dunes so that they can get the water in their in their photos. Um, so that was really striking to me, just that you're not allowed to build on the water there. And that coastal protection system that they've built, which is, um, you know, technologically, you know, amazing. They built it, started building it back in uh, the 50s. Um, it's just really guarded the country People haven't died, but they're not, you know, they're not allowed to build right on the coast. And it's so protected that they don't have flood insurance. Um, and people are generally unaware that their country is, is at risk of flooding.
0: So there was a huge, you know, natural disaster that prompted this. And obviously, Texas has had its own natural disasters yeah. with different responses. Talk about the the natural disaster in the Netherlands and the response it precipitated versus Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure.
3: Uh, So a very big uh, storm hit in 1953. Uh, It had a death toll almost identical to Hurricane Katrina. It was about 1,800 people. It was just this um, massive, you know, devastation. Um, And, you know, at that point, um, the Dutch engineers had pulled off this other very technologically innovative um, storm surge thing in the northwest part of the country. This storm hit the southwest part of the country, and they were like... We're the masters of the flood, you know. We're so good, and it was super embarrassing to them. Um, and they said never again. You know, we're going to um, to prevent this um, within weeks of the storm. Uh, this special commission convened and came up with uh, the Delta Plan, which led to you know the construction of five storm surge barriers and all these locks and sluices and. Did they have to move people
0: off of the coast? Like, did was there a, a culture of sort of, you know, oceanfront property
3: owning in the Netherlands the way there is, I feel like, in Texas and the United States? There, there wasn't before. And I think, you know, one of the big differences is that the country is so much smaller. Um, a third of it's below sea level. It's super prone to flooding. So I think people didn't build on the coast just kind of naturally before. Mm-hmm. So they were spatially kind of set up to build these massive things along the coast um but um they certainly um, recently have done more buyouts and relocations so what does any of this mean for houston as it
0: tries to figure out its own plan i mean is this you know you express in your story that there are some big fights ahead what is this about you know sort of personal property rights is it just about the method and the cost what are the primary barriers to texas doing what the netherlands did
3: So the initial plan that the Army Corps and the General Land Office came out with in October actually didn't look super Dutch. It sort of did. There was still um, storm surge barrier gates that are very, that's the kind of quintessential Dutch thing. They're closed ahead of storms to block storm surge, which is actually the deadliest part of a hurricane. It's not wind or um, other kinds of flooding. Um, and the other component was these big 17-foot tall levees along the highways, the main highways on uh, Galveston and Bolivar Peninsula, um, and people hated that because it would have left hundreds of homes stranded, if you will. That's kind of a loaded word, but on the coastal side of these levees, um, and people were extremely pissed about that and said, you know, um, you need to do something, you need to revise it. Uh, and this oceanographer at ANM Galveston. Um, has proposed for like a decade now putting dunes right on the beach. They would protect everyone. He says it follows the Dutch concept of blocking storm surge right to the coast and protecting everyone. Plus, they're Um, not ugly. They're not ugly, no. Dunes, are pretty. No, no, yeah. And the Army Corps, so they've since revised their plan, and they're now looking – the plan looks a lot more Dutch, Hmm. um, which was – Convenient for me going over there.
0: <laughs> that's the, we can now appreciate them for more than yeah. dating. <laughs> well,
2: like, what do those dunes like take in terms of construction and upkeep? Like, I because it. You Where look do you at get the all pictures. The you're from. like that's just a yeah. sand pile, but I want. Sands.
3: Um, so one thing I learned is that sand is way more expensive here mm-hmm. than it is there. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge thing. Um, it's interesting because so the dunes I mentioned earlier six stories high. Sixty feet high. About the dunes they're looking at for a Galveston and Bolivar, twelve feet high. Whoa! And originally, they say that would protect against a hundred-year storm. That modeling, you know, shows that. One thing I learned is that the Dutch typically designed to protect against a ten thousand-year storm, yeah. which is <laughs> they're um, a little more risk-averse than we are. <laughs> they are yeah. definitely, um, yeah. It's a mm-hmm. national issue there, um, and a big concern that people expressed with the revised plan was that they didn't plan on fortifying the dunes, so the fort- fortification means having like a concrete structure or like a compacted clay structure underneath the dunes so they don't just wash away during a hurricane. Um, and it's funny, a few days before I published, um, you know, I'd asked the Army Corps about that, like people were concerned about this. Uh, they said, we're not wanting to do that because of impact to nesting, turtle nesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all these environmental you know, um, laws at the federal level that are very restrictive. Um, so they called me, like, two days before the store, and they said, we're actually considering we're going to fortify the dunes now <laughs> um, based on, you know, they're meeting with all these researchers and working with them. Um, the guidance that they were given um, was to not, you know, reinvent the wheel. It was to, like, work, you know, base their, um, their plan and their, you know, project off of work that's already being done. Um, so they're working closely with Rice University AM Galveston, um, UT Austin, in some senses. So, um, yeah. Well, it was a wonderful story. I, I encourage you all to read it if you haven't.
0: That is all the time we have this week. And thanks to Zach Theater's Ann, Texas State Technical College, the Medill School of Journalism, and Episcopal Health Foundation, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon, as always, for our theme music. On behalf of Kia, Jolie, Edgar, Abby, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.
3: Do do it!